There's a little debate that we were having this morning about whether Palm Sunday is the beginning of the Holy Week or the day before Holy Week starts. But either way, Holy Week is this day that we, or this week that we remember the Lord's Jesus, the Lord Jesus' journey uh, to the cross, his death and resurrection. And Palm Sunday is the day that we celebrate this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. All the way back in chapter 9, uh, when we're as in our studies of Luke, all the way back in chapter 9, we remembered this critical verse where it says, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem to endure all that waited for him there. And this day, Palm Sunday, is the day when he finally, when he finally arrives in Jerusalem. And I've got to confess to you, like many of you, I'm, uh, I'm one who grew up in the church, and I remember the celebration of this day really, really well. Uh, as children, we would, you know, we, the, our tradition was to wave palm branches and we would march down the front aisle and uh, waving them around, kind of reenacting what was going on in this passage that we're about to read. And I, I'll confess that while uh, I knew that something significant was going on here, I don't think I really ever understood just how significant the story is. And so if that's you, if, that's, if you come in here with that kind of sense, then uh, I hope that you'll look at what's going on here in this passage as I'm about to read it, and that you will glimpse the heart of Jesus that exists for you in this journey, and that you might leave here with hearts full of thankfulness for all that he has done for you and all that he promises to do. That's my hope for you, is, to encourage, is just to encourage you this morning. Uh, if this story is new to you, or maybe you're not sure how you feel about Jesus, my hope for you is really simple, that, that you will leave here with hearts full of curiosity, that your curiosity might be piqued. And maybe some of your questions will be answered, but most of all, I hope that this stirs in you more questions. Hello, Matt. <laughs> and that this might stir in you more questions, uh, and that your curiosity will be piqued um, to investigate further about just who this man is and all in the claims that were, that we're making about him this morning. Let's look together. This is the story of the triumphal entry. I'm reading Luke 19 verses 28 through 40. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find the colt, that's a donkey, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, 
If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, uh, Lord, what a wonderful time that we're having this morning where we get to receive new members. Children are joining your, your church and professing your faith. Other children are being baptized. You are good and faithful to us. And I pray, Lord, as we stand under your word, that you would give us a renewed heart for who you are and that you would encourage us deep in our spirits. Help us to see Jesus and help me, your servant, to serve you and to serve these friends well with these next few moments that we have. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So every now and then we come across a marketing campaign that just nears perfection. I'm not in marketing. I don't study marketing. Uh, I wasn't a marketing major or anything like that. But it occurs to me that there are lots of advertisements or commercials or whatever that have the power to make us laugh. But but what makes a, a, a marketing campaign effective or powerful is this ability to evoke in you a longing for something more. And uh, it was a number of years ago that, the, that Dos Equis, the beer company, brought the most interesting man in the world into our lives. And, uh, and it just struck me, that, 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 uh, that, those commercials struck me so much because of what they were communicating to us about what the ideal man looks like. Like they were giving us a picture of what the ideal man looks like. And what they showed us was somebody who is um, quite capable. Like they can do well anything that they try. They're universally admired. They're world, he's a world traveler. He's debonair and he's handsome in his old age. And above all, what stood out to be the most as a man who is just like none of those things is that they were giving us the picture of a person who is completely at peace with themselves and the, the world around them. And I, I bring this up because um, I have yet to meet one person as accomplished and gifted as they might be who shares that sense of deep peace with themselves and the world around them. Like when every person, including me, that I've gotten to meet has that in common. And even though many of us have, uh, have, have just mastered the art of being able to project a sense of deep security and stability, there's not really one person that can escape the reality that deep contentment and deep security is elusive to any of us. To, to all of us. And the story of humanity as it's offered to us in this book is that we are a people who are fundamentally in need. Everywhere you see God's people examined in this book, you see needy people. And it communicates to us that God's people need a champion. They need someone to fight for them, someone to represent them before God, someone to win their hearts. That everywhere God's people, ha- uh, you see a representative for them that stands before God for them. And in fact, when that person doesn't exist, you see that they're often in trouble in some way. 
And what I want to say to you is that in here in this passage, you see a champion being offered to you. That you see in this story a champion being offered to you. And as we look at this story, the question I want to ask you is, is this the champion that you're longing for? Is this the champion that you know that you need? And so I'm going to explore this passage with you. I'm just going to ask and ask and seek to answer three questions as we make our way through it. First, who is he? Who is Jesus as we see him in this passage? Second, what's he doing? Like what in the world is going on here? And finally, what are the responses that we see in this passage? So who is he? What's he doing? And what are the responses that we see? First, who is he? Well, the short answer is that this is a king. Like, uh, marching into a town to a lot of praise and adulation, this is something that a king would do. This whole scene is reminiscent of when, like, a king or a mighty general, a commander in some way, would return to a city after having done battle or after conquering the city would come in. You've probably seen this in a number of movies. The one that... um, stands out to me the most as I've been looking at this is this scene that was in Band of Brothers years ago where allied forces kind of liberated a town from um, the German occupying forces and they're marching in and you see people sitting on tanks and marching ahead of them and everybody's gathered and looking out from windows and praising with thankful praise all of these people who just came in and liberated them. That's the kind of picture that we see here in this passage. It was really common throughout history for something like this to happen. It's just kind of normal. But what strikes the imagination about who Jesus is is that we get a picture of a completely different kind of a king. And that he's riding on a donkey, stands as this kind of banner that communicates to us about just what kind of king that Jesus is. And the first you see, this donkey communicates to us that this is a humble king. It's important that he's not coming in on on a mighty, like a, 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 a strong horse or a chariot or something like that that would be normal for a conquering king. But he's coming in humbly riding on a donkey. This is not a king whose strength is seen in his numbers or the amount of people around him or his muscle or anything like that. It's as if he doesn't feel the need to make much of himself at all. This is a humble king. And then you also see purity here. It's really interesting that Luke um, takes the time to make the note that this donkey had never been ridden on before. And that's meant to communicate purity, much like the tomb that, uh, that Jesus will lie in in a few days had never been used as a tomb before. Those kinds of things are meant to communicate to us a sense of purity, both for the donkey itself and for the person that's riding it. So he's humble, he's pure. It also tells us something about Jesus' intentions. It tells us that he comes with peaceful intentions. So in this day, a prince would sometimes ride around parts of his territory and he would ride on a donkey. And that was intended to communicate to anyone that he comes across that he travels, he comes near to them with friendly intentions. 
earlier, early in the bulletin, all the way back, if you look at the reflection section, I'm going to just call attention to it again. There's a passage from Zechariah 9 that describes a king that comes riding on a donkey. And it says explicitly there that this king will speak peace to the nations. And so what we're getting this picture of here in this passage is that peace is not coming Uh, Jesus is not working out this peace by any kind of ordinary means of power or control or subjugation or anything like that. You're seeing a king that fights a completely different battle with a completely different set of weapons. And you get all that in this passage. Jesus is a different kind of king. But you know what stands out to me the most about this passage? It's just wonderful is that Jesus appears to me like someone who is in complete control. And nowhere is that more clear than when uh, you see him send his disciples to get the donkey. He sends a few disciples ahead of them to round up this donkey that he's going to ride into the town on. And he tells them what to say if someone challenges them. And they go ahead. That's what happens. And they get the donkey in return, and that's the end of the story. Jesus completely worked it out and predicted it. When I was a kid and I heard this story, I I thought this was some kind of like Jedi mind trick. Like the Lord has need of it, right? And it's possible that Jesus prearranged all of this. He had been in Jerusalem before, although he hadn't in a while. But either way, it's giving you this picture that Jesus is orchestrating and uh, and in complete control the whole time. And that's something that we've seen throughout this book of Luke as we uh, have read all of these stories and looked at them. Not once have we seen Jesus ever out of control. We've seen him sad. We've seen him uncomfortable. We've seen him exhort and those, but never once have we seen him actually like lose his handle or anything like that. You see him in complete control all the time. And that's the thing about Jesus that we got to understand. Because in a few days, the joy of this day is going to give way to the darkness of Gethsemane. And Jesus is going to suffer things that no one would invite on themselves. He's going to be abandoned by his friends. He's going to be falsely accused publicly of heinous things. He's going to undergo just significant physical trauma. And, it, and the disciples are going to wonder in those days, is this something that's happening to him? Or is he allowing this to happen? And in all of those moments, it's important to know that Jesus isn't subject to a power that's beyond his control. That when he set his face to go to, to Jerusalem, that he was doing it willingly, on purpose ready to endure whatever he faced. And the claim that's being made here that we have to reckon with is that Jesus is presented to us as a king with just complete authority. And he's not like the kings in our history or even some of the famous kings in our literature. 
but he's humble. He's of pure intention. He has peaceful intentions, and he's in complete control. Now, when you're drawing up for yourself the champion that you need, the one that you hope would fight for you, is this what you imagine? Because that's who he is. The next question, of course, is what is he doing? Like, why is this so important? Well, the first thing he's doing is he's making an announcement. Like, in order to understand this, we need to understand really helpfully what he's been up to. Jesus' mission has been about proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God with himself. That, that when he came, the very kingdom of God has come with him. And so he's been performing miracles. He's been healing people who, who nobody else could help. He raised people from the dead. And he's been preaching a message And these miracles that he's been working out that nobody else can somehow accomplish have been substantiating the truth of this this preaching the message of the coming kingdom of God. That's what he's been talking about. Just before this passage in Luke, there's a parable. We didn't look at it. I wish we had. But there's this parable of the ten minas, which if you ever look at that, it denies this immediate sudden appearance of the kingdom of God. But it teaches us. That God's kingdom is gradually taking over his creation. It's this unstoppable outward movement that this kingdom is moving on, taking over God's creation and renewing it. And this takeover includes the rejection of a ruler who harms his people and hates God. And when Jesus makes this uh, triumphal entry, he is making this grand announcement that the king has returned to the city. The king has come. And so he's making this announcement, but he's also fulfilling one of God's ancient promises. Let me just remind you of that Zechariah passage. That is an ancient promise that God made that he will send one who will come into the city. And what will this kingdom do? What will this king do? It says he would destroy weapons of war. And bring peace to the nations. It says that his rule will extend from sea to sea. It says um, that Jesus' arrival is the fulfillment of God's promise to cleanse the world and renew his people. Now that's a sweeping promise. This is big news. But I would submit to you that that promise is only sweet to you if you have a deep sense that the world needs renewing. A few uh, years ago, this is not one of my brightest moments, okay? But a few years ago, uh, I um, conducted a, a little experiment. You can actually see it if you go way back on my Facebook page. Uh, years ago, I wouldn't, I mean, it's probably not worth it. I'll tell you all about it right now. But I, uh, because Facebook is just so known to be such a healthy and life-giving place for conversation, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I threw out a question on the interwebs just asking people to answer it. And I asked this question. I said, what, what did I say? I said, what's the world's biggest problem? Just threw it out there. And I got to tell you, I'm not very active. Occasionally you'll see a picture or something, but I don't generate a lot of traffic on, uh, on Facebook. 
But answering that question, I had more response than I think I've ever, uh, I've ever seen before in my life. And, and, and people were deeply interested in the answer to this question, uh, whether they were Christ followers or not. I got lots of, and I'm happy to say that it, the conversation was civil and, uh, and respectful the entire time. But I got all kinds of suggestions for what, what was the biggest, the, the, the biggest problem in the world. And I heard about all kinds of things, all true. Like, I heard about meeting practical needs for the people that, uh, for people around us, like available drinking water. Somebody talked about that for a while. Um, I heard about unstable economic and political circumstances. Yes, we were still talking about things like that just a few years ago, right? So there were a number of friends that commented on our disposition toward others, noting noting a lack of compassion or empathy. Um, I, uh, I had somebody that said carbs are our big, uh, the biggest thing that's wrong with the world are carbs, and somebody else agreed immediately. Um, a friend of mine said University of Virginia Athletics, and I uh, conceded their point, right? But you know what I didn't hear? I didn't hear anybody question the question, the question itself. Like, nobody said, um, hey, things are basically okay. Don't change a thing. And I'm talking about this because the Bible reads with the assumption, or the exception, that something is deeply wrong with the world. It's reliably honest about the state of things. And I don't know anybody, Christian or non-Christian, that would dispute that. But God's proposition to you is that these are all symptoms of a deeper problem. That the, the deepest problems in the world aren't out there somewhere. They're actually in here. That we are the ones that contribute to this. That, 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 are, that are complicit, that even participate in these things. And that this problem isn't somewhere else, it's right here, and it can be traced back all the way to when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and rejected him. What was the temptation that the snake tempted Adam and Eve with? You will be like God. And we have been trying to be our own gods ever since. And what we find is that we are just unfit for the task. And one of the things that means is that we can't be our own champion. We are unfit for that. We need somebody outside ourselves. And so this is the last thing I want to say about what Jesus is doing is that he is stepping into the arena on our behalf. That when he enters Jerusalem, he is placing both feet in the arena to fight our battles for us, to pay the price that our sin has incurred. He is offering a sacrifice on our behalf because we can't do it for ourselves. Jesus is stepping into the arena as your champion. So what's your response to that? You can go any number of different ways when you think about this. 
But there are a number of responses right here in this passage to how the people here responded to who Jesus was. And the first one's what I want to call the hopeful enthusiast. This is the crowd. This, these are the disciples going before Jesus and laying their palm branches down and they're singing and screaming and they are so happy about what's going. They're saying, at last, my king has come. And what strikes me the most about these people is just how free they seem. They're truly freed. Just a hopeful enthusiast. But you also see what I want to call suspicious antagonists here. This is the saddest part of the story. These are, these are the Pharisees that try to tell Jesus to rebuke the crowd and tell them to be silent. Now, I mean, we can only guess at what was so annoying to them about this celebration of Jesus. It's possible that any kind of messianic celebration like this would trip alarms with the Roman governors, you know, and they wanted to make sure they shut that down. It could be that these people feel threatened by Jesus. In fact, that's likely. We don't really know for sure. But this is the saddest part of the story because these are people who are bearing witness to a glorious revolution that's happening right under their noses and they have no idea. They're so upset by it, they can't enjoy it. Suspicious antagonists. And then finally, you see curious onlookers. Now, they're not mentioned here, but you know they're there. These are, these are people that um, are probably around, they're in the crowd, and they just don't know what to make of it. Like, they, like they don't necessarily, they're still trying to figure out who this Jesus is. How do I feel about what's happening here? I don't know, but I'm curious. And I just want to ask you, where would you place yourself? Are you hopeful and enthusiastic about who Jesus is? Does your life belong to him? Is it possible there's this great party celebration, work of God that's happening among us, but it's hard for us to enjoy it? Or are we still wondering where we are? I just want to challenge you to ask that question sincerely of yourself and, uh, and invite friends into that conversation. And as you do, you can be brave. You can have courage as you think about those things. Because there's a champion who stands before you. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. This is quite a, this is quite a thing that we witness that you did this, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to think deeply about all that this means and strengthen us for the work in front of us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you did. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.